Well, go ahead and grab a seat, all y'all. That was in honor of Mark, who just got back from five days in Atlanta. Makes Julie feel at home. Yeah. <laughs> well, good morning again. This morning, we are um, starting a new series for our sermons over the next bit. And we're going to do something that we've never done before at Sanctuary. Um, we have tended to preach through books of the Bible or kind of themes. Um, but we are going to try preaching through the lectionary for a bit. Who here is familiar with the lectionary? Right. So the revised common lectionary is basically a schedule of passages. Um, decades ago, a variety of leaders from a bunch of different denominations got together and created kind of the schedule of readings over the course of three years. There are daily readings and then there are Sunday readings. And the idea is that over the course of three years, um, if you are reading everything, that you will have gotten a pretty comprehensive survey of scripture. So we're going to dive into that for a little while, and we're going we're to preach the passages that come up. Um, there's a couple things that I think are great about the lectionary. One of them is that you don't get to cherry pick what you're preaching on. So when we have chosen books of the Bible, when we have chosen topics, we've tried to do that with a, the leading of the Spirit, trusting that what, what we are led to is what the Spirit wants us to hear. Um, but with the lectionary, you preach what is there, what has been you know, prescribed years in advance, you are also preaching and hearing and, and contemplating things that Christians all over the world are hearing and thinking and contemplating at the exact same time. And I think that there's power in that for us. Um, one of the other things um, is that over the course of the three years, if you're following all of the readings, you will actually read through um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their entirety. So there's an emphasis on the New Testament, but there's also a good... Um, uh, look at the Old Testament as well. So we are jumping into the lectionary here in, in Easter season, um, and the passage that we're going to look at today is out of the book of Revelation. So way to just dive right in the deep end, right? We're going to jump into Revelation chapter 5. So I'm going to pray for us, and then, and then we'll dive in. Lord, thanks for the gift of this morning. Thank you for health, the breath in our lungs, the ability to get out of bed and make our way here. Thank you for the beauty of this place that we call home. Lord, thank you for the relationships that we have interacted with this weekend, um, for the friendships that have been present, for the family um, that is in our lives. Lord, as we come to worship this morning, we bring all of that to you as well as um, the things that are heavy on our hearts, and we lay it all at your feet. Lord, as we enter into reflecting on this book of Revelation, fairly unfamiliar book for a lot of us, maybe a scary one for some, we ask that you would meet us here, that you would um, comfort our hearts, that you would um, help us to stay present in this moment, to hear what it is that you have for us out of this book. We lift up this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are like me, you spend a lot of your life kind of an autopilot, kind of going through the routines that are set before you, doing the things that you're supposed to do, getting out of bed, brushing your teeth, eating your breakfast, going to work, making kids' lunches, filling out field trip forms, paying the bills. 
And if you're like me, you need um, catalysts to kind of kick you out of that kind of plotting every once in a while and to remind you that there is so much more to life than those simple routines that you settle into each day. For me, gardening is one of those things that kicks me out of that autopilot. And so this time of year is my favorite because I get to go out in the yard and I get to watch things starting to come alive. Over the course of the last few weeks, I've been out in the yard a lot and I was just trying to figure out why I have this callus on my finger and I think I just realized why. I am the crazy woman who edges my yard with a pair of scissors. <laughs> my dad bought me a crazy, powerful, like diesel-powered edger and I used it once and I was like, oh. it's like bringing like a train through my beautiful, precious backyard. And so I'm back to edging the yard with a pair of scissors. But as I was doing that this week and Amelia's out playing in the yard with me, there were several times where an earthworm would come shooting out of kind of the clod of dirt that I was just getting ready to chop off. And I had this chance to pick up and just revel in an earthworm. First of all, when they're shooting out, trying to get away from those scissors, those suckers move fast. And then you pick them up and you hold them up to the sun. Have you ever done that? They're like amazingly see-through. And you can see all of the little dirt and sand that they have ingested that's getting ready to get pooped out the end and become fertilizer for your garden. I love what gardening does for me, that it causes me to slow down and to marvel at the intricacies of God's world. I just bought a mason bee house for our yard, and I bought 20 little mason bee cocoons from Sky Nursery, and I'm pretty sure that all 20 of them have hatched and flown off to some other person's yard. But it has put me in a place of pausing and like looking at the bees in my yard and trying to see what kind of bees are they. And are any of those the dollar a piece of mason bees that I bought? No, I don't think so, but those are really cool, fat bumblebees. I love what gardening does for me. It causes me to slow down and to see the world around me through new eyes. It kind of wakes up my imagination. Well, I think that the book of Revelation can do for our spirits what gardening does for my mind. The book of Revelation is one that when we enter into it, it just explodes our imaginations. It's, it's a world of sky battles between angels and beasts. It's a world full of lurid punishments and glorious salvations, of kaleidoscopic visions and cosmic songs. And all of this crazy imagery builds to a series of magnificent, sense-shattering worship services. Now, there's nothing new in the book of Revelation, and that may be surprising, but everything that we find in Revelation has its roots in other places in Scripture. Much of it is taken directly from different Old Testament prophets. And so we read Revelation not to get more information. Revelation is read incorrectly a whole lot of the time as this kind of answer key to the end times. That's not what Revelation was written for. When we engage Revelation, when we read these crazy images out of the book of Revelation, 
It's intended to awaken our imagination, to kick us out of this routine that we so often settle into. The routines of our lives breed familiarity. They breed hurry. They breed anxiety, don't they? And familiarity dulls our perceptions. Hurry scatters our attention. Ambition fogs our intelligence. Anxiety robs my appetite. And so the invitation to us this morning is to wake up, to wonder, to worship, to step back into the garden, to step back into whatever place it is for you that enlivens your imagination, to step into Revelation's neon-colored, crazy vision, and to be woken up to be brought to our senses, body and soul, to be brought back into a place of wonder and worship. So that's the invitation this morning, to wake up, to wonder, and to worship. Three W's. So the book of Revelation is an unfamiliar one for a lot of us, and rather than my trying to catch us up to chapter 5 on my own, we're going to watch a five-minute video from the Bible Project that is going to do that for me. And so... Hold on to your seats because this is a lot of information. Don't try to write it all down. Just kind of take it in. Audio. The book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in the early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalypsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypse has recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalypse 
apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus, exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church. Some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised. Their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples. But others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus, and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was passed, and the persecution of Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely underway. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome or literally conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth. And so this opening section, it sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline in this book. Will Jesus's people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is John's answer. After this, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, and he describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all creation and human nations, and they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, holy. In God's hand is a scroll that's closed up with seven wax seals. It symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's visions. These are all about how God's kingdom will come here fully on earth as in heaven. But it turns out no one is able to open the scroll until John hears of someone who can. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can open it. These are classic Old Testament descriptions of the messianic king who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, that's what John hears. But then what he turns and sees is not an aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb who's alive, standing there and ready to open the scroll. Now, this symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb 
Abraham, this is crucially important for understanding the book. John's saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was the way he conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with the lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne and together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer and the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. Okay. Got all that? <laughs> so the Bible project, you can go to YouTube and you can find videos like that on I think every book of the Bible and they're excellent. So that was a whirlwind, but it gives us a quick overview of kind of where we are in the passage that I'm going to read in a minute here. But I want to touch on a couple things from the video first. So it mentions that there are seven letters written to seven churches. These are the chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. And probably most of us are familiar with at least the last letter, which is the letter to Laodicea, because many of us, much of the time, uh, probably feel as if that letter is written to us. So he says, you kn I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I, don't, I need nothing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. You can become right, and white clothes so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. We live in an independent, isolated, self-sufficient world that generates independent, isolated, self-sufficient lives. And we pride ourselves in being independent, self-sufficient. We strive mo mo most of our lives to get to this point. But Jesus' words in this letter to the church in Laodicea give a different perspective on wealth, on self-sufficiency. These things that we spend so much of our lives striving to attain in this letter actually function as obstacles to our accepting the greatest invitation ever, which is an invitation to a feast being laid out before us in heaven. At the end of the letter to the church in Laodicea, Jesus extends an invitation. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So there's an invitation at the end of chapter 3 to a feast, to a great worship service. An invitation to shift our focus from providing, storing away, and to lift our eyes and to remember the bigger story. And it's a story of God's faithfulness, of God's provision in our own lives, but also in the history of the world that's laid out for us in scripture. So again, the invitation to us this morning is to wake up, to wonder, and to worship. So the first verse of chapter 4. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. So remember, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And now we see the door. The door is open. And a voice said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we are given a picture 
of the throne room of heaven. And it is anything but lifeless. It is anything but routine and mundane. It is multi-sensory. It is lavish. So we saw this painted really quickly in the vision. But there's a throne here. And there is a person sitting on the throne. And this person is shining like jewels. John can't even describe it. And then around the throne is a rainbow that's shining like an emerald. I don't know how that happens. And there are 24 thrones around this big throne. And there are 24 elders sitting on these 24 thrones. And these elders are wearing white. And they represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. So we have the old Israel with the new church all together around the throne. These elders dressed in white, they have gold crowns on their head and they're holding harps and they're holding golden bowls that have incense in it that represents the prayers of God's people going up to heaven. And then there are these four creatures and they're crazy. And they have eyes all over their bodies and they have six wings. All of these things are gathered around the throne. And all God's people and all of creation, which these four creatures represent, day and night, Never stop worshiping the one who is on the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They say over and over again, they rise up and then they fall down in front of the throne and they worship. And then it happens again and again and again. So then in chapter 5, we see that the one that's seated on the throne is holding a scroll. And that scroll is a message from the prophets about how God's kingdom is going to come here on earth as it is in heaven. But there's no one who can open it. No one who is worthy to open that scroll. And so John begins to weep, nasty, snotty tears, because no one can open that scroll. But then one of the elders says, there is one who can open the scroll. The lion from the tribe of Judah the root of David. These are titles out of the Old Testament prophets that, that describe the Messiah who was to come, who would save his people. The Messiah can open the scroll. The Messiah will show us the way. But then we turn to see the Messiah, only instead of seeing a lion, we see the lamb who has been slain. Imagine that. You're hopeful, and then you turn, and you see the lamb who was slain. But the lamb takes the scroll, and the lamb says, I can open the scroll. I am worthy. And then at that moment, all of the elders and the four living creatures and the multitudes of angels, tens of thousands of angels, fall down and begin worshiping all over again. This time they're worshiping the one on the throne with this lamb who was slain at his right side. I'm going to read now our, our passage of scripture, two-thirds of the way through the sermon. This is in chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. The lamb has just taken the scroll and said that he can open it. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God members of every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, 
And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Friends, we have just entered into the Easter season in the life of the church. Now, most of us, we, we anticipate Easter. We, we do things leading up to Easter. And here at Sanctuary, we, you know, we celebrate Ash Wednesday. We have a service for that. Then we enter into the season of Lent. And then we have Good Friday, where we remember Jesus' arrest and death on the cross. And then all of that comes to culmination in Easter Sunday when we celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead, that he conquered sin and death forever in Easter. So our tendency is to build up to Easter. We clean the house, we hide the eggs, we cook the ham, we have a big Easter celebration, and then the guests leave. We collapse on the couch, and then the next day, we move on. Back to ordinary life. But the fact is that we have entered into Easter season. The fact is that this passage is chosen on this particular Sunday for Christians around the world to read, to remember, so that we can be reminded that the empty tomb is not something that we simply move on from. The historical, spiritual, cosmically significant events that happen on the cross and in the tomb in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago that we remember on Easter are not merely roadside attractions like the biggest ball of twine that you pull off the road for, snap a picture, and then continue on. Easter changes everything if we stop, if we turn off the car, if we get out and stay a while. If we take the time to be present with the mind-boggling events of the cross, God slain, God broken open, God poured out for our sins, but then raised again to new life, having conquered sin and death. His life for ours, because his love for us is that immense. If we take time to be present with this story, to enter into it, then the only possible response is wonder. The only possible response is worship. There's a book that I love called Desiring the Kingdom by Jamie Smith, and we reference it here fairly frequently. Because in it, he argues that human beings are primarily not intellectual beings. We are not primarily thinkers. We are primarily desiring beings. And so at our heart, we are worshipers, first and foremost. And worship is at the heart of what we are called to as Christians, as Christ followers. But if we're not intentional about engaging in liturgies, rituals, that shape us as worshipers of the Lamb of God, 
then the liturgies that will shape our desires, that will focus our worship, are the liturgies that we are unintentionally living out each and every day. The liturgy of the shopping mall, the liturgy of the sporting event, of technology, of the quest for information. We are all engaging in liturgies every day that are created for us by marketers somewhere. Being God worshipers takes intentionality. To add sacred liturgies into our lives, to begin viewing our everyday activities and liturgies through a sacred lens, takes intentionality. It is not going to happen if we rely on the marketers that put together the little ads that pop up on Facebook for us. Worship is something that can and is happening every day of our life. It's not just something that we come to on Sunday mornings. It's happening as you look at your phone. It's happening as you watch TV, as you watch that sporting event, as you shop Amazon for that next thing that you need. But worship also happens in our community groups. Worship can also happen if we are intentional around a campfire with friends, over a meal. There are tools like Pray As You Go, which is an app you can put on your phone. The Bible Project videos, they actually have a Read Through the Year program that I just found out about this week. I forgot to bring it, but Mark just purchased a beautiful hardback um, book called Every Moment Holy. Is that what it's called? It has liturgies. We used it at the women's retreat last weekend. Liturgies for gardening. Liturgies for a feast with friends. Liturgies for your first cup of coffee. Reframing the everyday, ordinary moments of life as holy. Because they are holy. God is in all of it. If we are looking for him. And if we are acknowledging him. I loved the Lenten devotional that we put together this year. Matt, I don't know where you are. Jeff, it was lovely. And what I loved the most about it was, first of all, the prompt to have each one of you thinking about how do I see God in my week, but then sharing it. Katie, I loved your reflection, just acknowledging that, like, for you, you're intentional about singing worship songs so that it frames your day through that language. And I think, amen, right? My kids have an iPod playing all the time in their their room. Ugh. You know, it's fun pop music, but I don't want that framing my kid's life, right? Alistair doesn't know what he's singing yet. But we need to be careful about what we let our kids sing because it's shaping them. And I love that worship music, you're intentional with that. Mary was talking about, you know, just her inclination like me to glory in creation and to find God in that. And her invitation was to, for each one of us to just take a moment to go out and marvel at some bit of creation. For Jen, she said, you know, biology is her thing. So not the macro thing, but like the micro things, you know, make her marvel. Every moment can be holy if we are intentional about bringing that language and that perspective to it. And early on, it may feel like work to be remembering God in all of these different moments, to integrate these sort of spiritually shaping routines that help us to remember, to reflect on who God is, what he has done. But in time, as we commit to just one or two of these rituals, these routines, these liturgies, they will begin to shape us. 
develop in us a way of thinking, a spiritual muscle, just like we go to the gym and develop physical muscles, theoretically speaking. In our community groups this year, we have been practicing some of these routines, the prayer of examine, intentionally reflecting back over the day, simply looking for God in your day. Maybe you missed him all day long, but we're going to pause for a moment here and we're going to look back and find him. And we're just going to say thanks for that. Reading scripture, meditating on scripture, Lectio Divina is a great exercise. God, what are you saying to me in this scripture, in this moment, today? Coming to worship here on Sunday, being in community groups, spiritual friendships, all of these things are practices that when they become second nature, begin to shape the way we see the world and then begin to shape the way that we enter into the world. And then suddenly God is everywhere. Every moment becomes a moment to thank him. Every moment is evidence of his love for us, for his provision. And so worship then just begins to bubble out. And that is the invitation this morning, is to wake up to whatever it is that helps you to wake up, to enter into that this week to enter into a space of wonder at who God is, what he has done, and then to worship, to express your gratitude in whatever way is natural for you. Maybe it's art. Maybe it's gardening. Maybe it's song. Take some time this week to wonder and to worship at the God who sacrificed himself and then raised from the dead for you.